how can artists avoid being exploited? Do you ever wish life had an undo button? Walking the balance between business and the creative life can be hard. But Matt and Shelby are here to attempt to answer the tough questions, so you don't need an undo. Presented by Made by Things, this is the Command Z Show. And we're back with another episode of the Command Z Show. Uh, we are going to continue our Making Midwest series that we have going on here. But before we get to our guest, Shelby, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. Pretty good. I'm really waiting for the day that we do a super cut of me saying pretty good at the beginning of each pretty good. Command Z pretty episode. Good. Pretty good. That needs to be like a part of our social media campaign is me just saying pretty good. It's just a full super cut. I'll get the editor on it. I think it'll be really great. <laughs> Give Command Z Show a listen. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, I like that. We could do that. Uh, whole thing around that. Uh, well, that's that sounds pretty good. Um, <clears throat> our special guest today, Kevin Rapp. Kevin, how are you doing? Uh, I'm disappointed that you didn't call me a pretty good guest, uh, rather than a special guest. He's a pretty good guest. He's a pretty good. <laughs> solid, like, um, B guest. He, he's, he'll do the job. <laughs> no. No way. You are a solid A guest. You are one of the very rare people that have been able to come on the show multiple times. Crazy. I don't um, know why you invited me back, but I'm here, and I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, not to, not to put too much pressure on you, but... I would say three times it gets you in the Command Z Hall of Fame. Ooh, so okay. well, let's, you're inching closer to that. Let's see what we can do here. Yeah, uh, Kevin, you'll be you'll be speaking at Making Midwest uh, May 17th through the 19th. 19th for everyone. You can see or learn more about it at makingmidwest.com. Get your tickets today. Um, <laughs> get your tickets now. Um, and Kevin, you. Uh, you were one of those picks that I had to be a presenter because I think you have a lot of really interesting perspective on a lot of different things. Um, and uh, I don't know, I was, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to give you a stage to, to speak on. Cause I know that uh, again, not to apply too much pressure here, but I know it's, it's going to be entertaining at least. There, right? Words will be said, opinions will be stated <laughs> And what you can take away from that is up to you. I, I'll just leave it at that. It's it's going to be an experience. I promise that. You at at worst, you'll learn what not to do. Absolutely. Right? You know what? Cautionary tales are just as valuable information as how tos. In my in my personal opinion. Oh, very good. So, uh, all that being said, um, you can learn more about uh, about Kevin's talk on makingmidwest.com. We have a little brief description there. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna probably talk a little bit about that today. You'll get um, a little brief tease, I think, into yeah, what we're gonna be talking bit. about. A little bit. <laughs> um, so, with all that being said, Shelby, you wanna you wanna kick us off here? Yeah, for sure. So, our big question of the day. Um, what I'm actually really excited about is how can artists avoid being exploited? Ooh. Um, can they? Can they? Can they? <laughs> can they avoid being exploited? That's. I, I mean, I don't. I don't know a single creative who hasn't somehow been exploited in the industry. I I don't know a single one because of a number of factors. Number one, we get into this industry because we love it. We are mm -hmm. passionate about the work that we do. And a lot of us would do it for free, but hope to make a living doing it. And we find ourselves in a position where the industry as a whole, people in positions of power can take advantage of that hunger to do that work. and can pay them less than they're worth, can pay them in exposure bucks, can find ways to not truly invest in the people and 
utilize them as a skill set to get cheap labor. And I view this as a really systemic problem. I don't think that this is a single aspect of our industry. I don't see it as like there's a couple of bad actors. I, I view this as a true systemic problem that comes from a devaluation of creative on a systemic level, as well as a lack of business sense that invests in people to truly help them grow. So when I, when you ask how can they avoid being, being exploited, I don't know that there's a way to truly avoid it because it is systemic. There are ways that you can navigate the cultural and systemic exploitation Mm -hmm. of creative people and their talents and build a niche for yourself and empower yourself to take some of that power back. But I, I think if you're a young artist getting out of school, no matter what, there's some way that you are going to be exploited as you get into this career. There's just, there's just no way to avoid it. My personal opinion. Right. One of the things that I think about, I, I think for the most part, I have a feeling that we're going to agree with 97% of how each other feel about this, but I think there's a little bit of difference that we're probably going to find at some point. There'll be nuance for Um, sure. Right. And, um, I, there's a part of me that says that that's just, that's just work, right? Like work in general is exploiting another. Absolutely. Um, in, in some way you could kind of say that. So, I don't know. It's really weird because like I've, I've had this conversation with, with people before um, where depending on if I'm hiring or, or whatever I'm doing, if I have a post out there, I have people that'll send me private messages and be like, Hey, you're exploiting people. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm listening to you. Like I, you know, I, as a person that started off as an artist myself, like I very much in touch with the community and I want to be a leader in the community. But I see things like that and I'm like, whoa, like that's like I, well, that's not what I'm trying to do. 100%. Um, and uh, it, it's one of those things that kind of makes me take a, a good look at like just everything that I sort of put out there. But it also, I start seeing that perspective. And again, I I don't necessarily think it's something for people to get angry about. No. Um, But just the idea of like, okay, so like. I don't know, like if, when you start comparing it to other industries too, it's like, okay, well, could you say that an employee at McDonald's is exploited? Absolutely. It's a multi-billion dollar company and they pay minimum wage for people to be taking cash from the people. <laughs> like, yeah. like you, you could say that. So I guess what I'm trying to also understand is like, where, what's the difference between exploiting an artist? Mm-hmm. Like, exploiting in, in quotations and then maybe exploiting just any employee of any sort. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not entirely brushed up on my marks and the, the, the concept of, you know, the means of production and, and how that works. Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously this is like a larger issue with capitalism as a whole, right? Right. right. Capitalism right. typically exploits labor. It that's just kind of how it works. And the people at the top tend to find ways to profit because they're the ones that are taking the risks, right? So right. the people who take the risk generally get the greater reward. But there's there's ways to do that ethically. And right. there are ways in which the squeeze happens from the top. Um, so like you as a business owner are working within the constraints of what your clients are going to pay. And so the squeeze is going to continue to happen. And the people at the lowest rung of the totem pole are the ones who get squeezed the most. Right. And so it's why this is a systemic problem. You know, it's why this is a issue that I, I don't think that there are like, you, you do, I don't want to just say like, oh, these studio owners are doing things badly or these clients are doing something badly or it's 
it's a cultural systemic thing that stems from, and here's where I think things are different. The fact that we as a culture don't value creative relative to the impact of what it does, right? Creative is a thing that's intangible. It's hard to quantify. You can't put numbers to it. And so you see marketing teams get a lot of success for things that move the needle because they're the ones that control the numbers and control the narrative. And creatives don't often get a seat at the table to truly advocate for themselves. And even though their work is largely what moved the needle, the media buy does some of the work, right? The brand recognition does some of the work, but largely over 50% of any ad campaign is successful because of the creative itself. And because we don't have the seat at the table, there's usually not like creatives presenting the success of a creative campaign to the C-suite, right? It's usually the VP of marketing or the CMO. They have the control of the narrative. They can advocate for how that is presented and they can present how it was a marketing win, even though it's largely a creative win. And so that's that's where I think it's different is we have a culture that builds itself on design and builds itself on creative people. There's so much of business and brands that is largely successful because of the way that the creative has shaped it, but we largely don't get the credit for it. And that's where people will view, you know, day employees or, you know, working shift people as, you know, low impact. They'll say they're unskilled workers or whatever. They'll they'll find ways to, you know, say, okay, these people are replaceable. And they view the same thing of creative, but Creative is doing a lion's share of the work. And right. it's Marvel sold itself as a $4 billion company to, to Disney, right? And that wasn't right. because of, you know, the, the brilliance of their marketing team. I mean, Marvel was bankrupt in 98, <laughs> right? It wasn't, right? It wasn't a great company. It Mm -hmm. was foundationally built by genius creatives that built lasting characters that resonated with an audience and made itself a $4 billion company. And Jack Kirby, the guy who created most of those characters, largely didn't get a lot of the credit for it and and definitely didn't see the financial windfall from it. So it's... That's where I find the difference is I think that we as a culture don't respect creatives relative to how important they are to a business. Yeah. Go ahead, Shelby. Yeah. I feel like it's something where we've gotten so comfortable with the notion of exploitation, which Mm -hmm. is, it's such a strange thing to think about with how comfortable we are with it. And the fact that we just accept it every day and we see it constantly. I mean, I was I was I was on TikTok and there was like all these Sephora employees that were posting about how they all got cookies with the words like one billion dollars in revenue on it. Where <laughs> Sephora's ex- they're like, oh my gosh, we're so excited, we got a billion dollars in revenue, and everybody everybody that was working in sales all got one cookie per each employee when they're the ones that are selling the products. It's like it's yeah. such a strange thing that. So many people would have checked on that, looked at that, said, yes, this is totally appropriate. This is what we should Mm -hmm. do. This is how we should celebrate it. And not one person said, hey, this is kind of weird. You know, maybe maybe we're being a little (laughs) exploitive here. Like they're so comfortable with the notion of it. It's just it's such a strange place to be. But we live in a late talking about it. We're living in late stage capitalism and we've gotten to a point where this is completely comfortable and we can just exploit without really anybody saying anything. And not only that, when when you pivot that into the creative field. We feel grateful for being exploited. Yeah. 
right? Like we feel yeah. like, oh, this company took a chance on me or I get to do the work that I love. And yeah. so we have this weird intersection of the passion of the work that we do and the requirements of what it means to stay alive in capitalism. And that entanglement gets us into really murky emotional territory where it's hard to separate the, I love doing this thing from the, it is clear that I am being taken advantage of to do this thing that I love. And we misplace our affections or our, our gratitude to really saying things like, oh man, I'm, I'm so glad that I get to work at this company. They gave me this chance. They're giving me these opportunities rather than saying like, I am providing tremendous amounts of value and not being compensated for it appropriately. It's so easy to get into the pattern of feeling grateful for being exploited. It's hard because we love this work and we toiled away in order to be able to do this work and to make a living doing it. And we view these as the necessary steps to get to where we need to be rather than saying, what can we do to change the system? What can we do to build something better? Because studio owners are in the same position, right? You know, studio owners, agencies, the squeeze comes from the top and the artist who is being exploited is working for a company that's being exploited and it, it right. just it just breeds it's it's a cycle it's not it's i don't think there's malice intended right like i no one really sets out to say oh i'm really glad i get to exploit this person today that is not it's not like <laughs> Right. It, it's rarely the cartoon uh, fat cats, right? Like sitting around, like counting the money. It's the, all of us are doing what we can to survive. And we are working in a system that is making it very difficult for us to do that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting when we, I guess for me, I feel like a lot of that starts when we're kids. It does. And art is generally the second favorite thing. Recess and then art. Yeah. Like almost all kids, like that's kind of their thing. Yeah. So I guess we sort of are conditioned to believe that it, it's it's a reward, right? It's a yeah. reward that we get to do these things. And as we get older, for me anyway, like we never talked about the value of what we were doing, right? We just talked about more of the emotional side of things and like, I don't know, like there is the therapy side of what we do. Yeah. That's why what we do is so great. There is a therapy to it that There's... we get to participate in every single day. And that's mm -hmm. truly incredible. Yeah. Um, but yes, like nobody ever talked about that value and it always felt like philanthropy to me. Anytime that anyone did like, give me a shot at something like, Oh, okay. I, I spend $70,000 on college and you give me a degree and a chance to work here. Like that's <laughs> yep. incredible. I'll take it. percent. <laughs> um, and it, you know, the first job that I had for two years still thought I was getting away with something. Yeah. And it wasn't until my, my second job where I, you know, still felt like I was getting away with stuff until the day came where I tell the story all the time, but <clears throat> until the day came where, we worked on some uh, animations for like a financial uh, company's new market that was opening up and they released the videos and it was less than a week later. They said that it was, they could put it as directly responsible for over $1 million worth of investments. Yep. And that was just after a few days. And that, that, it just hit me like a sack of bricks. There are moments like, where like yeah. the math starts to like come into place and right. you're like, wait a second, <laughs> right. wait a second. There's a disparity 
between the impact of what I do and the way I'm compensated for it. Right. And that's, and that's kind of what it was. And again, I, I wasn't like angry or anything yeah. at that point, but it was like, at that point I was like, I have to fight. Yes. Uh, Cause now I see like what's here. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I, I wanted to be a business owner long before that. And maybe that's one of these moments where I was like, let's take note of this yep. because that's how you sell this stuff. That's how you, you don't sell, sell this by saying, I'm really good at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's but too, too many of us to do too many of us do too right. many of us say, and, I, I am a master of my craft right. and here's why you should trust that I will do create your project with the excellence of craft. And right. they don't care. right and and i guess that's that's the thing where i'm like should they care yes they like well like okay they should should, but like how how should they care like how i guess that's that's to me maybe that's the issue right there it's like from a business perspective they're focused on numbers correct and this is this is always the thing that i'm i'm constantly trying to navigate is like okay what is that intersection of creativity and business yeah and it's, it's not, those are, that's an oxymoron. Like those are the most unlike things that you could ever think of. And to try to intersect them, yep. it's, it's a struggle. And um, I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm going to go, I'm going to be listening, but I have to go get my dog off the table. He's blind. He jumped up on the table. Don't know what he's doing up there, but get, get you keep going. Time. I'll hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so my thoughts on that are that we treat the craft like, the only thing that matters when really the craft is table stakes, right? The craft yeah. is the thing that basically if the client is coming to you, they already assume that you have the level of craft that they're expecting to do the work. It's not really the differentiator. It is the, it's table stakes. It's the thing that get, that they automatically assume that you have. The thing that's really going to set you apart, the reason that they choose you is because you bring the solution to their problem that is going to make them money or increase their brand awareness or achieve the result on a business level that they are trying to achieve. That is the thing that matters. And the more that you position yourself to be able to show that you're that person, that entity that can solve those problems. That's when you really start to have the conversations that you need to have. That's when you can really start to position yourself and advocate for yourself for the value that you deserve because you demonstrate the value that you provide. The craft isn't the value. The craft is the window dressing a lot of the time. The craft is you know, part of what makes a work unique, but it's not all of it. And it's probably not even the main part of it. It is, it is more the icing on the cake than the cake itself. So I guess what, what I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost seems like you're saying that artists should have some kind of business sense. Yes. Yes. Um, and I guess that's kind of what I'm saying from, from my story is like, it it wasn't until that started to click for me when I started to have that interest where I started being able to put those pieces together a little bit better. Um, and I guess, you know, fast forwarding to kind of where we're at, where we're at now, we work with some clients that are purely interested in the artistic Mm -hmm. approaches that we offer won't say a single word about money or what it does for their company. Mm-hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, we work with people that are like, mm, I don't know if that color is going to produce the right amount of clicks 100%. Uh, to produce, you know, the right conversions on this thing. And they are very focused on things from a, a business perspective. Yep. Do you think that one of those is right or wrong? So, I think it's all, it it varies, right? Like, every, there, you will find success 
in how do I want to say this? Let me let me take a second. I think the, no, no worries. I think the intersection of creativity and business is where things truly thrive. I think when you get incredibly analytical to the point where you're over indexing on every single color and every single creative choice, I've seen that be stifling to the creative environment that requires risk in order to get reward, right? Yes, you should test things. Yes, you should find out which variables perform. If you get so hung up on formula that you're not willing to take risks and try new creative opportunities, you're rarely going to find a breakout success. You're only going to find incremental wins. And incremental wins are good on on optimizations. But when you're trying to find the next big breakout performer, it requires you to extrapolate a little bit and come up with hypotheses that are wider than just, hey, let's let's do this tiny little tweak here uh, to uh, on every single creative decision you make. On the other side, when you're purely kind of thinking about the art and you're making like brand films and, and you're doing things entirely just from a creative perspective that doesn't have a reasonable hypothesis behind it, I think you're also hinging on luck to get something that's going to truly connect. I think you have to have kind of a, a a common middle ground in between both of those two areas that have thoughtful reasoning behind the creative decisions that you're making, why you think it's going to resonate with the audience and apply the creativity in a way that lets you think of the variables that you want to test, what you want to learn from each piece of creative that you put out into the market and a thoughtful plan for how to execute it. Yeah. I, Um, I think both extremes have some challenges. So, well, actually, before I go to the next thing here, Shelby, any, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I completely agree. I, but I also am not really, I don't really see things in a very binary way. I think there's always gray area. I think everything should be a little mix of the two. Um, I think that I completely agree. I mean, you need to be looking at the analytics. You need to be understanding, yeah, how does this perform? This is better than this. So that way you can make smart business decisions. But it also allows you to make smart creative decisions. When you go in there, you say, okay, this is performing really well because we just did something that was different. You know, I mean, I think about Duolingo all the time and how crazy their creative space is. Their marketing team is insane. They just do weird stuff constantly and it works so well for them because they take those risks. But that is analytics though too, because they are looking at, we went on this sort of risk. We did this sort of content and this performed well. It's not just, you know, throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. They're doing weird stuff purposefully because they know it works. Absolutely. They, they were very thoughtful about it. And that's why I often say, don't be data driven because there's a lot of people who are like, I'm a data driven creative. And I'm like, okay, then you're probably boring. Um, <laughs> instead be data informed or the, right, right. what, what That's I call good. it like hypothesis mm-hmm. driven, right? I let the data influence the creative decisions that I make, but ultimately if data is driving all of your decisions, you're going to take things at face value. You're going to say, this didn't perform. You're not going to dig deeper and understand why. So let me give you an example. Um, We did an ad that was a little bit on the edgy side. And we put it on OTT streaming platforms like Hulu and and something like that. And we saw that the 15-second wasn't performing very well. We actually got a few complaints about it. And we're like, oh, the content is really like, not working. We're getting some pushback. We dug a little deeper and we found that the media buy on the OTT side was screwed up and the 15 second ads got played back to back. So 
30 second ad, the same 15 second ad played right one right after the other. Wait a sec, wait a sec. Are you saying that every time I see that on TV, that's probably that could be the problem? That could be a major <laughs> error is is just the media buy that's got screwed up and it was supposed to be like you're just supposed to see a 15 second ad and then you were supposed to see another 15 second ad from somebody else. But the media buy got screwed up. And so that was the problem. It wasn't the content was too edgy. It was the media buy was wrong. <laughs> and so we changed the media buy and the problem went away. And so if you make yourself data driven, like the data told us, we we need to pull that ad. But when you dig deeper and find the reasoning behind why that data exists, when when you dig into that data point, you learn, oh, okay, maybe we actually need to make a different decision. Right. I think there's also part of it with a lot of these decisions where it's like, you know, we might be told like, oh, you know what? Let's make this thing blue. Like we've tested this and it performs best. The question that's usually never asked is what did you compare it against exactly? It's like, oh, okay, well, we just did green and blue. It's like, well, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of different colors in the spectrum that like we could try all these different things, but like. And and where did you test it? Was that a button on a CTA on a website? Guess what? That's different than a video. Guess what? Because there's context Mm -hmm. there where a video is in motion and a a flash of blue that transitions to green feels different than a static button on a website. Right. And yeah, I, I, I guess that's, there's people are making decisions based on very, very small sample sizes, either of variations or even of impressions or exposure of it. Um, and that's honestly, that's one of the things I really like about the work that you do, Kevin, is that you are very much uh, people see a, a spectrum yeah. and then you see, no, 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 <laughs> it's a much larger spectrum than you think maybe it is. It is. It is. And you hit on something, number one, that I think is a real problem is when people have limited data sets, they tend to come to the mm-hmm. most extreme conclusions possible. Yep. Which is like, hey, I tested this one video and guess what? It didn't work. So I guess video doesn't work for us. Right. <laughs> I guess we can't do animation ever again because this one video that we tested didn't work. Right. And so I always try to urge people to look at the bigger picture because as studio creatives or as freelancers, whatever, agency people, you tend to get a little tunnel visioned where you see the project that's in front of you and don't really recognize that's going to be part of a larger ecosystem that this brand is putting out. This is a piece of inventory that's going into their overall Facebook ad library. That's going into their Google ad inventory. It's one piece of the puzzle. And so we view it like it's like M&M and we have one shot, right? Like we have this one video and it has to like, like it has to be perfect. It has to be the one. And it's like, no, actually you can try a couple of different things there. As long as they've got the media dollars behind it, you can say, I have a couple of different hypotheses of what I think is going to work here. And I think we should try a couple of different ideas, whether that's just as simple as a message test of, Let's just try a different opening line to see what is a better hook for this 15 second ad. Or it can be something as wide as we have entirely different creative approaches that we think are going to solve this problem. And we'd love to work with you and collaborate with you to find out which one is going to be successful and we'll help you test them. Because it's, you don't have one shot. You've got a ton of different shots. The entire brand is built on not just finding the one winning ad, but doing a lot of experimentation and finding the things that perform. The more that you explore and the more creative risks that you take, the more opportunities that you have to find the things that are going to be huge, huge performers for your brand. Right. Um, uh, Changing gears just a little bit here. And I want to do that with a little bit of a story here. This is, these are true stories. Right. I'm getting my campfire um, ready. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> the story is that uh, a brand wants to make a good 
decision as far as hiring the right company or person. So they decide to get, uh, let's say, three bids. Sure. Right. Oh, the from, classic triple bid from different companies, and and they say, "Can you give us a quote? And can you give us a treatment?" Mm-hmm. Yes. Treatment. This word right here. And from their perspective, they feel like, okay, we are reducing our risk here by making sure that we are making a very informed decision about working with the right partner. Yep. And um, of those companies, almost 100% of the time, they decide to... I shouldn't say that. Maybe it's like 75 to 100% of the time. Companies see, oh, this is a very big opportunity for us. Uh-huh. If we land this project, if we land this client, that's uh, that's going to help us in the future. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and ultimately, these three companies, they provide, each of them provides two to three different treatments, uh-huh. uh, which all range in different colors, shapes, and sizes, and then the company picks which one they think is the best, and that company wins the work and gets to work with them for approximately one year. Yep, sure. Uh, This is the kind of traditional way that the stuff always plays out. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's a long answer probably, but where is this brand failing in this process, do you believe, as far as not exploiting creatives yeah so the brand is failing in a couple of different areas because it starts from a position of fear right that's that's their first problem they're starting from a position of fear they start the triple bid process because they want to show that they've done their due diligence right we've vetted some of the best possible vendors that we could pick to we picked the best one and so if this project fails, you know, it can't be on us. We we went through the most tried and true process that every client does. So it's it's already screwed from the start because they're in cover their ass mode from from the inception of the project. And they're not truly going after who's going to solve the problem their most. They're likely basing that decision on price. Right. Like that is a large majority of the time the the final decision is made on price rather than who truly has the right solution to to the problem. And the the creative agency, the partner that they're trying to bring on is in that position of, okay, I'm going to try and make this work. And so in that position of I'm trying to win the job, they're not trying to find the right solution to the problem, they're trying to find the thing that the client's going to buy. Right? That's the position that you're in when you're an agency triple bidding against the work. You're not saying, what's the best idea? You're not going to push back on the brief if something just doesn't make sense. You're going to say, oh, this is what they're asking for. So I've got to make sure that I'm answering exactly what they're asking for rather than trying to solve the actual problem. And so you'll come up with three ideas two that you actually are interested in and then one that's the safe one that they always buy. And that's the position that you're going to be in as an agency. And so when you're a client, you're getting a couple of fun ideas that show how creative this agency is. And then you get one idea that you're like, okay, that feels like a safe bet that we can, that we can reasonably test. And so ultimately, typically the results of that process is you find a vendor, the one that was probably the cheapest, that has an idea that you feel is tepid enough to be safe, that you can put out into the market. And ultimately, no one was really asking the right questions along the way because they were so consumed with how can I win the work and how can I build the relationship to show that I am a good little order taker that will not push you too hard and you get something that's pretty safe and tepid and 
maybe it'll do okay, but it's rare that you get something that's truly a breakout of success in that process. And you then go back to the, okay, well, let's go back on this rodeo again and see if maybe another vendor will find us something that'll hit it out of the park. Now, where can they go differently? What can they do instead? Start with the problem. What are you trying to do? Who do you think has a solution that can solve the problem that you have? Tell them the budget up front because you know what it is. Yep. You know the number. Yeah. Like this, yep. Yep. this isn't magic. <laughs> you have a yearly budget for marketing and you have an idea of how much you want to invest in creative up front. You know, stop pretending you don't. You're not telling us because you want us to undercut each other so that you can say, look, I saved us 10%. Please give me accolades, my boss. Um, And you can tell them what you have. You can define what the problem is and let the partner that you think is going to come up with the right solution help them collaborate to come up with what that solution is. And work with them along the way to influence what you need to influence. Like, make sure it's brand, right? Make sure that it's oriented towards the understandings of the brand and your audience that you have way more insights than any external partner is ever going to have. Exercise the power that you have responsibly and utilize the experts that you've brought on to bring the expertise and bring the solutions and be willing to test and try new ideas because you're coming to external people because you want an outside perspective or because you want a specialized skill set. And if you just micromanage them in order to make the same soft, tepid creative that you have been relying on for who knows how long you're you're not really trying anything new. You're not testing. It's not a test right. if you don't have a variable. <laughs> it's not really a variable. It's just it's just a it's just a slight variation. Um, so that's that's where I think brands could do things a little differently, and where I think they'd find a lot more success. So, I, I really love this answer, by the way. Um, but to me, I, I guess I tell this story because I feel like that's where the biggest problem lies right yeah. now is in this little process right here that I truthfully, I, I don't know what the exact number is here, but I feel like by not participating, being a studio that does not participate in these kinds of things, that effectively narrows your audience maybe in half. Yeah. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Like, it's tough for me to swallow that. Like, we've we've done this before. Yeah. Like, not very often, but like every so often where I'm like, mm, this might be an opportunity that could be good for us. Yeah. But you know what? Like, we win almost never. Mm-hmm. Like, technically, if you're looking at it, at best, you have a 33% chance of winning. Yep. And that is not great odds to enter into a relationship like this which when you even if you do win you know like you know the big brand agencies they'll party whenever they land a big client whatever but like you've just entered the relationship so unbalanced so unbalanced that it it will never get more balanced than the start of that relationship um and again, I'm I'm tr- saying this stuff to myself too. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I I make the mistake, like it it happens, and but it's it's a gamble, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I feel like that's sort of what happens is you know we say this word of risk, mm-hmm. where if the financial gain is at the top, then the risk needs to be at the top. Yeah, it cannot be the risk should not be at the bottom. It should be <laughs> up there. Like that's yeah. that's. That is how business generally works. Yep. But they've sort of found this way. And I think this is something that's, I mean, you, you even go back to the Mad Men days, yeah. right? I feel like that's when it really got heated up and we haven't quite left that phase just yet. And, and um, from a client perspective, yeah. why would they? 
right? Why would they? Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. I get right. three companies to do all this labor for free, mm-hmm. and I just get to pick the one I like. Why would they change? Right. Why? Right. Exactly. It's like it's like asking three plumbers to come over and yeah. I want you to fix my toilet. Maybe they all I mean, maybe toilet's too simple, but like yeah. they might all have different ways of doing it. But but like here, get me halfway in. there and I'll pay the one who I think does it the best. <laughs> right. Right. And it's like I, it's really weird because we are we are a service-based industry. Mm-hmm. Um but when we're giving a part of our service away, ultimately i think i think that's the biggest problem but it's not something i talk about too often because i'm like i don't know what the real answer is here we can't just so we don't have this union where we could all go on strike Uh, (laughs) i don't i don't know so i can tell you a couple of things that i've kind of implemented into my process so number one is i always push back on a brief that i don't think makes sense that's that's number one is uh, if a brief is telling me, hey, we need to get a bunch of conversions and everything that they have in the brief is basically brand awareness tactics. I'll just flat out flag it and say this brief is not optimized for the problem you're trying, trying to solve. Here's what you need to do if you're truly trying to achieve this goal. Here's what you need to do instead. That's step one. That shows that. The power dynamic isn't I'm an order taker. It's I am a strategic partner that is trying to help you achieve the results that you want to achieve. The other thing that I do is I don't present concepts. I present hypotheses. Um, And there's there's a subtle difference there. It's, It's really about the approach because a concept is I have this idea that I think is going to win. And here's why it's going to win. And here are the craft and creativity behind it. That is why that it is the right idea for you to buy. Instead, I come back at and say, okay, based on what you're trying to achieve, I believe X will perform for X reasons. Here, here's the reasoning behind it. Here are some of the creative techniques I'd use. And here's just a very loose idea of what it is. But, I base it more on the approach more than I base it on the idea because the idea always changes. Like it's rare in those triple bid situations where the ideas that you present in the deck are the thing you produce. It's very rare to like look at a deck and go, yep, that's exactly what we made. Like that sample script we went, we produced it. No, it, it rarely happens that way. So I I don't get super hung up on the treatment because I don't think the treatment is the thing that really solves the problem. I think the approach and the system behind the thinking of what right. I'm doing is really the thing that's going to move the needle for the business. And so I leverage that thinking and I don't promise that it's the idea they should buy. I say... I have a reasonable hypothesis why I think this will perform. And guess what? I have a couple other hypotheses too. One of these I think would be worth testing. And honestly, I think all of them would be worth testing. So it doesn't become which of these three concepts do you like? It's are any of these ideas worth testing to you? Are you willing to invest in these ideas? Are you willing to invest to learn the things that I'm going to show you what you will learn? Like, if we test these variables, you'll learn X, you'll learn Y, you'll learn Z. Is it worth the investment? And that, to me, positions me as a better partner to the clients. It shows them how I fit into their overall workflow, rather than just saying, here's the idea, you should buy it. Right. So part of the problem, I guess, that I see from a business owner standpoint Mm -hmm. is... Um, I mean, again, everything you said, 100% agree with, but the problem is that, you know, going back to what we're talking about initially, right. Where it's the the exploiting from, it comes from the top down, it comes from the top. Right. Now, one of the things that I see is 
the people that are more willing to go with like, oh, this person looks like a great partner. Yep. They don't have the Nike budgets. Sure. They don't have the, the generally don't have the Fortune 500 budgets. Those companies are generally the ones. Now I'm speaking generally here. <laughs> Uh, generally the ones that are requiring this triple bid system yeah. that are requiring creatives to <laughs> just, I don't know, go to battle against each other yeah. over price. Yep. And, and yes, they, they, they keep doing it because they can, I mean, they have multi-million dollar proposals that they or request for proposals that they are putting out there. Absolutely. It's a, it's a big thing. Now, the, I think one of the problems that we've been seeing more, more recently is that smaller companies are trying to adopt this same technique yep. for $10,000 projects. Yep. And it's now I don't agree with either of those, but those are two different situations. Yeah. Entirely different <laughs> um, situations. Right. So, you know, part of the problem that I see is that the people that are more willing to say, you know what? I just want to be, I want you to be the partner. Let's do yep. this thing. They don't have those kinds of larger budgets. Again, this is just what I'm seeing yeah. again. So, um, so, and that's generally the kind of people that, that we work with that made my things. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I love working with these people. They trust us as a partner. The relationship is perfect from day one. We get, we have a, a chance to really kind of grow together. Yep. And like, those are my favorite situations. Yeah, agreed. But, but ultimately I feel like that's where companies like ours face a little bit of a struggle. The, the companies that are five to 15, mm -hmm people is that like okay well either we bid we we go into the whole triple bid situation we put all of our eggs in these baskets we give it everything we got and we fail yep. or we find the clients that want to just partner with us and we can kind of build stuff that way but the trade-off is that we don't have the crazy budgets to be able to kind of give to everybody mm -hmm. um I'm not sure if that's a real question or anything in there, but just a, an observation, I guess. Yeah, no, and and I think you're spot on. Um, there's uh, typically what I see is either a smaller company has people who came over from a bigger company and brings those bad behaviors with them. So they'll bring the right. triple bid system from a Nike from an Amazon, from a Facebook, right? Where they're right. like, this is the structure of how things are done. And we're going to bring that kind of structure here. And it's like, yeah, but right. you don't have the money to do that. So you should probably change things. Um, or you have right. people who truly come from that kind of environment, that kind of startup environment, that more nimble and agile um, kind of mindset. And you say, I need a strategic partner because that's what's going to bring me the results. And those don't, always have the budgets that are needed to really, really uh, sustain a business of your size. So I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think anybody has a good answer for it. Tell me, Kevin, I need to know this. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, th the way to move forward, for me at least, the way I've been moving forward, is to continue to position myself with the things that I do well and the, the ways that I know how to provide value and try to communicate that value to people. And that's, that's where I've found the most success. The most success I've found is when I've truly understood what my value is and learned how to not speak on my terms, but speak on the terms of the business owners and the clients that, that I speak to. That's unlocked more potential for growth for me than when I tried to fit within the system of right. what had been working for me, right? Like I, I really struggled getting any kind of growth when I just said, I'm going to follow the way everyone else is doing things. The more that I stepped outside and realized what I bring that is truly unique, the 
things that I do well and the things that I do differently and learned how to champion myself for those things. That has been when I've unlocked more growth potential for myself. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some final thoughts here. Um, back to the initial question. Now, I, Kevin, I know you said that maybe it's not possible yeah. to avoid exploitation in this creative world. But um, Shelby, I'll start with you. Final thoughts. What are the things that have to happen in order to uh, for creatives to avoid this sort of exploitation? Yeah, I'm going to go back to kind of that first idea we were talking about of this being a systemic problem and kind of combining, Matt, what you were talking about a little bit when you mentioned, um, you know, when we're in school, the way that art is treated versus something else. You know, like we think about if you're not very good at math, that's a problem. If you're not very good at art, well, it's just not what you're good at. That's okay. Right. And I think right, so right. much of it comes down to this idea of like talent versus skill. Because we're saying, oh, well, you know, here are our talents. We're not saying here are our skills. Here are real applicable skills that we have. And there is so much that like, the way that we use the language within creative spaces, the way that, you know, we contextualize situations so differently. Um, and even not contextualizing situations when we're just looking at data and not looking at the full, the full picture of things. So much of it comes down to that systemic issue of the way that we're speaking about creative talents versus skills, the way that we're seeing creatives and, and viewing them within, you know, workspaces, um, as opposed to them just being creative out into the ether. Um, I think it does come down to, we need to have that systemic change and it starts early. It starts in schools. It starts the way that we're, we're teaching children, the way that we're speaking to them, because that is going to be what changes in the future, our future generations and how they think about these things. And I think it comes with us as creatives having a little bit of pushback, you know, when we are in those bidding processes, when we're talking to those brands saying, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the best way you should be going through this process. And maybe we can help you solve and figure out a new way for you to be able to to work through these projects. Yeah. Kevin, final thoughts? Um, well, obviously, my final thought is if you really want to learn how you can stop this exploitation of creative people you should absolutely come to making midwest making midwest.com making midwest.com <laughs> buy your tickets and you can you can learn all the secrets all the, all the secrets no um <laughs> it is a systemic problem and i don't know if there is a way to avoid it but there is a way to navigate it and there is a way to advocate for yourself to fight back against that exploitation and get what you deserve. And it's difficult for us as creatives to do that because we are all crippled with imposter syndrome and believe that our yes. worth is derived from our craft. And right. so it's hard for us to advocate for ourselves because we get hung up in that trap and we have a hard time believing that we are worthy of the things that we do actually deserve. And so my final thought to all of the people out there listening is that when you're advocating for yourself, you're advocating for your community. This isn't just for you. Every Every little win that you have is building momentum for us as a creative space and a, as a creative group of people to gain more autonomy, to gain more trust, to gain more reputation. Every win that we have is a shared win. And so you need to advocate for yourself because every advocacy that you do for yourself is going to be a larger win for all of us. Advocate for yourself, advocate for the person next to you, advocate for your studio, advocate for the group of people around you. The more that you truly push back on these systemic factors, the more opportunity we have because it's a systemic problem. So it's going to take a systemic solution. And 
that requires all of us. Uh, love what both of you and Shelby said. I guess to to add to that, I would say, um, um, I guess I would say, pick up a couple business books. Learn that language a little bit more. I'm not saying what I did when I tell that story of, you know, after we got that investment, I, it clicked for me from that day forward, I pretty much only bought business related books. And again, that's just me. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but it was because I was fascinated at that moment. If I can start to uncover what the value is that I produce for people, perhaps there's something more to this. Um, and uh, I guess the other thing I'll say is, is, and we do this and I don't always listen to it. So again, let's do as I say, not as I do. Uh, have a list of red flags and know what you are willing to do and what you're not willing to do before that situation even happens. If you have something kind of canned and ready to go whenever someone says, okay, this is a three bid situation. And you say, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, we actually don't participate in those because we don't think that this is kind of the best way to be able to help you. It's really, it's really, really hard to say those things. It is. Especially if if things are going slow at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, or again, if you have, especially when you talk to people, they can make it seem like you're the only one, right? Yep. They can make it seem like you're the only one they're talking to. And they're like, oh, but formality real quick. We actually have to bid this out to two other people. Like, but we really like you. Yep. So when you, when you hear those things, you start to, I don't know, you start to believe that like, hey, this is ours. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is check a couple boxes and then this is us. We get this. Yep. But it's never, ever, ever that way. And um, so I guess what I would say is how this stops I really do honestly believe it starts there. Well, I mean, outside of what you were talking about, Shelby, I think it, there's part of it that starts very early in child's life. But if somehow or another a client says, okay, we found our three companies. I think all of these are good. Great. Let's talk to them. And they talk to each one of them and all three of them say, I'm sorry. We just, we don't really participate in that. At first they're going to be annoyed and say, fine, we'll find somebody that can. They'll find another set of three people. And if those three people also say the same thing, I think that's what it takes. I think after six, sorry, we can't do this. They start to look inward a little bit more. <laughs> if I was to put a number on it. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I, I think that that's, that's sort of what happens there. But it's, it's tough because we don't know who we're competing against. And... A lot of studios don't have the same red flags we all have. So in general, right now, yes, they will find somebody, even if they have to start digging deep and, I don't know, eventually start working with studios in smaller countries. They're going to find a way to sort of make those budgets and that, that technique work for them. But ultimately, I think what's going to happen, and I'm not trying to bring AI into this whole thing, <laughs> but um, I think what's going to happen is those studios, those people, those companies that decide to not participate in that will find a way to do the better work mm -hmm. and be able to have the stronger portfolio in the end and will be more valued to work with than other people. So... That is my hypothesis, Kevin. <laughs> These are all hypotheses, baby. That's all they are. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. All that being said, uh, Kevin, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us again. Uh, Kevin, you'll be speaking at Making Midwest. And uh, I have a feeling uh, some of these little nuggets might show up in, in your talk. You'll see. You'll see. This, is, this is a great little tease for what you'll see. Yep. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, my stomach has been growling for the last 30 minutes. If you guys can't hear it, uh, that's great. If you can, now you know what that noise has been. Um, so 
Uh, Kevin, where can people learn more about you outside of attending Making Midwest, makingmidwest.com? Makingmidwest.com. Get your tickets today. Learn all the secrets. Um, (laughs) You can... Check me out on LinkedIn, Kevin Rapp, R-A-P-P. That is where I uh, scream into the void on a daily basis. Um, Matt, you don't want to get into AI. I get into it all the time. And <laughs> the trolls come out on Next that time. One. That's the third one. That, oh, that'll be the third that's one. That's number three. Hat trick, baby. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, if you're, you have interest in the business side of art and the exploitation of creatives and the motion design industry and the ad industry and how creatives can get a larger slice of the pie. Those are just a couple of things that I yammer on about. You can also find me at kevin-rap.com for the day-to-day business work that I do. Nice. All right. Uh, to everyone still listening out there, appreciate you and love you. Bye. Nancy show is created by made by things and if you have a question you would like us to discuss you can send a message at cmdz.show and if you like what you hear leave a review we'll see you next week with a brand new show